Hello, you are listening to the Nourish Gut Podcast. This space is for the woman who is suffering from digestive issues like IBS and SIBO. I am your host, Carly Raven. I am a naturopath, clinical nutritionist, gut health expert, and mother. My mission is to help educate you about IBS and SIBO and take you on a journey to resolving your digestive issues. I will have real conversations and give you solutions that I know actually work. So if you're ready to be bloat-free, poo better, have more energy and become free from the fear of food, then you are in the right place. Hello and welcome back to the Nourish Gut Podcast. Today we are speaking to Dr. Brad Leach. I'm very, very excited to be bringing um, him on. This is actually part one of a series that we're going to be doing in collaboration with Microba. Um, so Dr. Brad Leach is a PhD qualified clinical nutritionist specializing in chronic autoimmune conditions and complex gastrointestinal disorders. He provides complete and personalized care to his patients using functional nutrition, integrative medicine, and holistic wellness. After entering the profession in 2008, Brad has taught and developed subjects at leading universities and conducted research on intestinal permeability, autoimmune disease management, food-based probiotics, and integrative healthcare management. Brad is currently the lead clinical educator at Microba, where his expertise in integrative gastrointestinal healthcare enables him to translate the latest science on the gut microbiome into clinical practice and applications. What a bio. It's absolutely Thank incredible. Thank you, Carly. Yes, uh, after 15 odd years, um, you start to you start to need to shrink down your bio and, and say less but at the same time, it ends up saying more. Um, so, yes, it's it's great to be here chatting to you all about the, the microbiome. Absolutely. We're very excited. So tell us a little bit. We're, we're going to be diving deep today into understanding the entire microbiome, and this is huge. So we're, we're, we're covering a pretty big broad topic today, um, but let's start off by you kind of breaking that down a little bit and actually telling us what the gut microbiome is, because I know lots of people know little bits about the microbiome, um, but maybe don't have that full understanding. Mm. Well, simply put, the microbiome, it's, it's downright incredible. The, the microbiome is our second brain. It's our second immune system, our second detoxification system, and really it's essential for life. Uh, from a more scientific viewpoint, the microbiome is the collection of, of microbes such as bacteria, archaea, fungi, viruses, and their genes that naturally live in our body and in and around us. These, these microbes can be found throughout our body and each region of the uh, the body have got their own unique combination of, of microbiomes and, and bacteria that kind of forms a unique function for that particular area. Now, the highest number of, of bacterial cells are, are present in the large intestine and is, is commonly referred to as the gut microbiome. What I find quite interesting is researchers have tried to quantify the number of bacterial cells in the colon, but over the years, the number has changed. At one point, it was one to one with human cells, and then it was one to three with human cells. So I don't 
really like to give a number here because next week there could be a new research article coming out to say there is this many bacterial cells in, in, in the colon. However, I think is more clinically relevant for the listeners is the number of species found in the gut. So what we know is there's generally around 6,000 species commonly found in, in the gut. And on an individual stool sample or in an individual themselves, there's generally around that 150 to 200 species. And it's, it's absolutely incredible to think that these hundred odd species that we call the, the microbiome can have such a profound impact on health. Uh, so yeah, that base basically gives a brief description of, of the microbiome. And so now that we know kind of like what the microbiome is in a little bit more technical, in a technical world, because it is a little bit overwhelming, isn't it, for like the people that aren't in research and stuff like that. I know even as a practitioner, like reading reports and all of the names, it's like learning a different language. So I think you've explained it really well there and simplified it as well. What So now that we know what it actually is, so why is the microbiome important and what is it actually doing for us? Mm, that's a great question. The microbial community in our gut can perform a a wide variety of, of metabolic functions, and they can produce metabolites that can actually interact with our, our guts, our immune system, our metabolic system, and even our nervous system. Some of the main functions of the microbiome include digesting fiber and protein, while also producing vitamins such as your B vitamins in a very, very small quantity, and also vitamin K. Perhaps my favorite thing about the microbiome is that they can produce these small molecules that we actually call metabolites. So our gut bacteria have the ability, uh, the ability to produce these diverse range of, of metabolites that can perform a number of different functions in our gut, from maintaining intestinal cells to regulating our immune system to reducing inflammation and even influencing our hormones. An example of beneficial metabolites that our, our microbiome can produce includes our favorite short-chain fatty acids, such as butyrate, acetate, and propionate, while there's others like IPA. Now, a lot of people aren't familiar with IPA. I'm not talking about the drink. I'm talking about 3-indole propionic acid, um, and it's, it's a very beneficial metabolite that protects against intestinal inflammation, uh, intestinal permeability, systemic inflammation, and it's a beneficial metabolite that our gut microbiome can actually produce. Other not-so-good metabolites are your hexalipopolysaccharides. So a lot of people will refer to these as LPS. So hexa-LPS and also uh, a compound or a metabolite called trimethylamine. These nasty metabolites, they've actually been linked with a number of health conditions and even uh, systemic and intestinal inflammation. These metabolites, they can impact us in either a positive way or a negative way and can be linked with a number of health categories such as intestinal inflammation, uh, intestinal barrier function, systemic inflammation, motility, and, and even detoxification. 
these metabolites and, and the whole microbiome can actually be protective against a number of, of health conditions. So let's take diabetes and obesity as an example. Researchers have shown that this interplay between the gut microbiome and our metabolic system and metabolic disorders such as uh, insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and, and even obesity have found that there's a link between these types of reactions and conditions and our microbiome. What the research has shown is that people with metabolic disorders will actually have a reduced ability to produce beneficial short-chain fatty acids, such as butyrates, and also that metabolite we mentioned just before, IPA. So these, these patients, these people, they, they, they produce less of this because their microbiome doesn't have the capacity to produce it. While there appears to be an increased ability in these same, same um, uh, individuals for them to actually produce uh, detrimental metabolites, such as your branch chain amino acids, which are pro-inflammatory, and then even other metabolites such as your hexa-LPS and your trimethylamine. Um, something I find quite interesting is that there's been a human trial that, have, that has used a, a high-fiber diet to modify the gut microbiome in patients with type 2 diabetes and actually showed that there was an improvement and blood glucose regulation with this high fiber diet as a result of the microbiome. Um, uh, research so is also, it? also <laughs> it, it is like, and it, and it goes that next step further where researchers have actually shown that taking the, the drug metformin or type 2 diabetes can actually impact the microbiome and actually have a beneficial impact. And so there could be a link there as well. Yeah, and I think that really highlights um, to like how the microbiome, a lot of people just think gut health, but it becomes whole body health. And, you know, that's just one example that you've explained how, you know, our gut microbes can affect and improve our metabolic system, which is just one other system in our body. So it it never ceases mm. to amaze me when we start talking about the microbiome, the the huge impact it can have on overall health and well-being. Another, another hot topic at the moment is this link between anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Now, although we, we don't fully understand how the gut and the, the microbiome may actually influence anxiety and depression, there's still a lot of research coming out. What we do know is the microbiome can actually produce and even consume a number of neurotransmitters, such as GABA, uh, norepinephrine, and, and dopamine. Now, we don't fully understand how these metabolites can impact anxiety and depression. But what I'm going to say is just keep an eye on this space because research is, is still coming out. Uh, another area with, let's say, a lot more research is going to be cardiovascular disease. Mm. So cardiovascular conditions such as hypertension and even plaque buildup have been shown to have an association with a decreased microbial diversity. So patients with hypertension have been found to have decreased microbial diversity and also a decrease to, to produce butyrate, your, your beneficial short-chain fatty acids. Now, you take this a next step further. Those with 
hypertension and cardiovascular diseases, they're also found to have an increased production in these pro-inflammatory metabolites, such as uh, hexa-LPS and trimethylamine. Um, so it's, it's all very, very, very interesting, the link between the microbiome, these metabolites, and health. And perhaps I, I should also give this one justice. The last condition I'll, I'll mention here is, of course, inflammatory bowel disease being situated within the colon itself. So you've got inflammatory bowel diseases such as Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and they were actually one of the first conditions linked with the microbiome of course. Um, and what we actually find in these patients is that there is a reduced diversity. And then there's also a reduced production to produce butyrate, while an increased production to produce XLPS. Mm. So as you see, the, the, the microbiome, it does a lot for us, and it can actually protect us against a number of, of different health conditions. Absolutely. And so generally speaking, most people think of like in our gut, we've got the good guys and we've got the bad guys, right? Like that's very commonly talked about. Um, I feel like we're kind of moving away from that in some sense, like, yes, that exists. But can you tell us a little bit more about maybe like the harmony and the community and the communication of these things rather than it being just as simple as, okay, we've got the good and we've got the bad in our gut? I like the saying. Now, it goes along the lines of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, that is so true when it comes around to the microbiome. The concept of good bacteria and bad bacteria is actually a, a misconception. And it's quite an old school thinking, as, as you said, that we're now moving away from this is good, this is bad, that the classic, oh, do you have lactobacillus and bifidobacterium <laughs> in your gut. Well, if you if you don't have it, oh, that's not good. Um, we're, we're moving away from this because, long story short, it's actually due to how we measure the bacteria. So long time ago, we, we didn't have this advanced technology as we do now. And the more we advance the technology in measuring the microbiome, the better we will become at understanding well, it's not just good and bad. It's all. It's it's more how the whole microbiome can interact with one another. So to better understand this this old school thinking about the microbiome, I think a good example is to actually touch on the different testing methods that are available to to measure the microbiome. There's four main testing methods used in clinical practice and even research, and these are culture. PCR, 16S, and metagenomics. Starting off with the old school culture, <laughs> when I say culturing the microbiome, we can only actually only culture about 5% of the microbiome. So there's a good 95% of the microbiome that we don't actually understand or see when we actually culture a sample. Um, believe it or not, it's still used in um, uh, research. It's still used in clinical practice. And when I have patients that have said, I've done a culture of my whole microbiome, and these are the species that are in range and out of range, I, I almost get shocked. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we can't look at the whole microbiome with culture. It doesn't work that way. Uh, there's some bacteria that can't survive in oxygen. There's some bacteria that won't thrive 
in that medium that we use for culture. Okay, so as, as, as the years progressed, we've also got a technology called PCR. Now, three, four years ago, if I said the word PCR, everyone would be like, oh, what's PCR? But thanks to the, the recent um, uh, COVID testing, we now know what PCR is. Yes. Um, so that's just made my, my job a lot easier explaining what PCR is. Mm. Now, just like the coronavirus, PCR sequencing of, of microbes is very, very accurate when we want to know one particular species. Okay. So in other words, if we wanted to look for a particular pathogen or a particular bacteria in the gut, we can, we can utilize PCR, but it utilizes this concept called a probe. And so you've got to have a probe to thereby identify the bacteria. So PCR is very great at identifying an individual species, but it can't actually identify the whole microbiome because you'd need a probe for every single species of bacteria but we don't actually understand every single species of bacteria, thereby we can't develop a probe for it. Um, so there's, there's limitations there. And so that could be this concept of why we believe that there's good guys and bad guys, because we're only looking for a select number of bacteria. The third testing method that I'll mention is this 16S. Now it's less used in clinical practice, so clinicians um, will be less familiar with it, but it's used in research. Um, the major limiting factor here is how 16S sequencing of the microbiome actually does its job. It actually looks at the genus level. And so when we, when we talk about sequencing the microbiome, genus level of any particular species of the bacteria could either be good or bad. And so genus level doesn't provide us with enough information to understand what's going on in the microbiome. Next, you have metagenomics. So metagenomics, also known as shotgun metagenomics, it actually uses the DNA of, of the bacteria, breaks it into lots of different pieces, puts it together, and we can actually identify a large number of the whole microbiome. So in some, in some cases, we can actually identify almost 30,000 species of bacteria, um, but about 6,000 of these can actually be found in, in the gut. Now, if we take a individual, for an example, generally speaking, you'll have between, as I mentioned, 150 to 200 different species uh, in the gut. Um, the other benefit of utilizing metagenomics is that we can actually identify unknown species of bacteria, but we can actually understand their function. So if we look at the whole microbiome using metagenomics, we can understand the function of the microbiome. Thereby, if we understand the function of the microbiome, there's less need to classify bacteria as good or bad. Let me, let me give you an example here. If we measure the microbiome using culture or PCR, and on a microbiome report, there are say 20 or 30 different species reported on. Some will be out of range. But what is this report actually going to tell us? Well, not a lot. It will actually feed into this idea of bad bacteria and good bacteria, and we need to kill bad bacteria and give probiotics for good bacteria. However, 
If we measure the whole microbiome using metagenomics and the microbiome report provides us with a list of all the species in the gut down to 0.01% relative abundance, it provides us with a number of metabolites that could be out of range. And because it's reporting on the metabolites that all the bacteria are producing, it can actually direct us as to what it means to the patient and what we can actually do to actually change the microbiome and improve health. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I've been doing a lot of like nodding my head yes as you've been talking and I've kind of been sitting here reflecting on my years of being in practice and all of the different types of testing I've used with my patients and how technology is advanced and I must say like at the moment I just think you know using um, metagenomic testing it's completely changed um, the way that I can help people in my practice and made it even more individualized. That's what I love about it as well, because it's like, okay, well, you're finding everyone's so different, you know, um, there's not always this one set of microbes and metabolites that that come up. It's like, okay, we are, it's a reminder of treating the true individual as a practitioner um, and really, you know, implementing some great um, uh, treatment strategies with patients as well. So absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I recall when I was, you know, probably 2012, when I first started learning about the microbiome and, and the lecturers were, okay, you have good bacteria, you have bad bacteria, understand lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And, and that was the extent of, mm-hmm. of my microbiome training. I, I left um, that particular um, degree going, okay, yes, I've got to make sure that there's bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. But the more we advance our understanding, the more that we learn about the microbiome, there are so many different species Mm. and you you get a better understanding of, well, what do they eat? How do you feed the microbiome and what you can actually do to improve health? Yeah, absolutely. So our bacteria need food, right? Like we need to actually kind of feed them. And can you tell us more about like feeding our microbiome and then maybe how that can impact our health? The first thing to discuss are the food sources our microbiome will consume. The the microbiome loves fibre. They can also utilise mucin. So mucin is part of our mucus secretions in our gut and in some cases can also utilise protein as a fuel source. Now, The primary energy source for the majority of bacteria in our gut is is fibre from from plant foods. These fibres, they are resistant to digestion and absorption in the small intestines with either complete or, or partial fermentation in the large intestine. Some of these fibres act as prebiotics and can actually fuel the growth of of beneficial microbes associated with health. Some of the the key examples of these prebiotic fibres that the microbiome absolutely thrive on are things like your FOS, your GOS, uh, pectin, inulin, resistant starch. Now, when gut bacteria use fibre as a fuel source, the metabolites that they produce are generally beneficial, such as your short-chain fatty acids and your IPA. This results in an improvement in health and well-being. However, what if there's not enough fiber in the diet or there's too much protein? In many 
in many diets I see in my patients and say the general population, especially here in Australia, there's a larger amount of protein. Mm. Now, when someone eats a larger amount of protein in a particular sitting, so a large quantity in one sitting, this can actually uh, escape digestion and end up in the large intestine where the bacteria can actually use it as an energy source. When the bacteria uses it as an energy source, it can actually produce detrimental metabolites such as your branched-chain amino acids, uh, hydrogen sulfides, and even that trimethylamine. Something we need to consider here is the type of protein. There's, there's two different types of protein. You've got your animal source protein and also your plant-based proteins. Um, the type of protein that produces these detrimental uh, metabolites are going to be your animal-based proteins. For an example, you have um, trimethylamine. I've mentioned a few times so far. It's associated with inflammation and cardiovascular disease. And one of its main fuel sources is carnitine, which is primarily found in animal-based products. So those who eat a larger quantity of animal-based products in one particular sitting, whereby it can not be absorbed in the small intestines, end up in the large intestine, the bacteria can, can use it as a fuel source, producing trimethylamine that results in intestinal inflammation and has been associated with cardiovascular disease. So when it comes around to feeding our microbiome, some can be beneficial, some can be detrimental. I generally like to provide my patients with three broad tips when it comes around to feeding the microbiome. The first of which is fiber, fiber, mm -hmm. and more fiber. So for women, we're aiming for that 28 grams of fiber per day. For men, it's that 38 grams of fiber per day. Most people, I'm gonna say a good 70% of people are not consuming adequate fiber. This concept of, of eating more fiber, eat it, I want insoluble, soluble. I want a diverse variety of, of different fiber. The next tip that I generally give, give my patients is to avoid this excess animal protein consumption in one sitting. Now, at no point am I saying go vegan. That's, that's, that's not what I'm saying. At no point am I saying avoid animal-based protein sources. What I'm saying is we need to eat it in moderation. We need to have 150 grams of, of chicken rather than a 400 gram ribeye steak. Um, so it's all about proportion. So having protein um, in smaller quantities throughout the day. The last kind of tip that I really like to emphasize when it comes around to feeding our microbiome is diversity. Diversity in the diet leads to diversity in the gut. Uh, there was a great study that found that those who consumed more than 30 different fruits and vegetables each week had a greater microbial diversity than those who ate fewer than 10. So something I tell my patients is when you go to the shop, find unusual vegetable or fruit that you didn't eat last week, whether it be um, asparagus or squash or that purple potato, fantastic. Bring it in, have a greater amount of diversity in your diet. That's going to have a greater diversity of different types of fiber which is going to feed our microbiome.
Mm, they're such great practical, realistic tips that I think absolutely everyone can do um, starting from today. And I did want to just mention to everyone as well that um, I do have a Gut40 resource, um, which I've created, which is an ebook. It's free, downloadable, and it's actually got a link to the international study that Brad was talking about in there and a lot further um, exploration around, you know, that study and fiber and with some really great practical tips for you guys as well to like start increasing plant diversity and some recipes as well so feel free to i'll pop the link in the show notes for you um and you can go and download that as well because i think that'll be really helpful um after feeling so motivated and inspired to to do that after listening to brad and all of the wonderful um information he's been sharing today it's fantastic to chat about the microbiome I could do it all day. <laughs> and I always learn something new. That's what I love about it. I think it's a forever evolving field, as you would know, you know, working with Microba and being so immersed in it. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share or leave with us today before we have to say um, goodbye? I know you're coming back for another two parts. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you would like to say? I'd like to conclude with the microbiome is constantly changing. Our understanding of the microbiome is, is always evolving. So continue to read the latest research and attend conferences and listen to podcasts about the microbiome because every day, every hour, there's more research coming out and it's advancing our understanding of the microbiome. And we can actually translate that to clinical practice so then we can support our patients have optimal gut health and, and optimal microbiome diversity. Amazing. So that wraps up part one today, but please come back and listen to part two, where I'm going to be talking to Brad about functional dysbiosis. Um, and that means imbalance. So we're going to be diving a little bit more deeper into the world of, you know, imbalance and more bacteria um, and, you know, how to treat it and some things that you can do to help if you do have what we talk about as dysbiosis so thank you so much um uh for coming on brad and i can't wait to dive deeper in in the next two parts fantastic carly i look forward to talking all about dysbiosis in our next uh chat. bye bye did you like what you heard leave us a review if you'd like to learn more about my nourish gut program or the nourish gut kids membership head over to my website would you like to be a part of a community that gets it? Join our Facebook group, Nourish Gut Community, or come and follow me over on Instagram. All of these links can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time on the Nourish Gut Podcast.